1: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
3: And financially supported by listeners like you. ECO Report for WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner.
1: And I'm Linda Leitner. Community groups in and around Dale and Spencer County, Indiana, north of Lincoln State Park, are appealing an air quality permit issued by the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. The permit was issued to Riverview Energy Corporation for its proposed construction of a coal to diesel refinery in Southern Indiana. The proposed refinery, which would be the first of its kind ever built in the U.S., would emit millions of tons of air pollution in the county. The proposed refinery transforms coal into liquid fuels like diesel and naphtha through a process called hydrocracking. The process would require crushing over 2 million tons of coal every year and mixing it with toxic additives. If built, the refinery would emit large amounts of hazardous air pollution. This would include significant amounts of particulate matter and other pollutants that contribute to lung damage and asthma. The refinery also would emit over 2 million tons of greenhouse gases every year.
3: Several years ago, a Sierra Club report identified the Rockport, Indiana coal-fired power plant as the sixth largest carbon polluter in the nation. The report cited EPA statistics which estimate the coal plant produced some 5.8 million pounds of air and water pollution in 2013. Members of the community, which lies east of Evansville, spent years on a campaign to close the plant. Indiana-Michigan Power, the operator of the Rockport plant, recently announced that it will retire Unit 1 of the plant in 2028. Ending pollution from the Rockport coal plant's Unit 1 will be equivalent to taking almost 2 million cars off the road each year in terms of greenhouse gas emissions.
1: There is promising science about bats that may alleviate the deadly white-nose syndrome. Researchers from Virginia Tech and UC Santa Cruz conducted a field trial on the effect of probiotic bacteria on white-nose syndrome in bat populations. They found that probiotics reduced the negative effect of white-nose syndrome on bats about five-fold. These findings were published recently in scientific reports. White-nose syndrome is rendering some bat species functionally extinct. Since 2006, populations of the little brown bat, the northern long-eared bat, the Indiana bat, and the tricolored bat have declined by 70 to 99 percent across 44 states. This research could help protect bat populations from white-nose syndrome in the future. The disease is caused by the fungus Pseudogymnoscus destructans, which colonize on the bat's skin. The fungus irritates the bat during hibernation, causing the bat to use its stored calories, and it dies of starvation.
3: An oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico has been leaking oil for 15 years. The rig's owner, Taylor Energy, claims that three or four gallons per day have been leaking since 2004. That's when Hurricane Ivan sank the oil platform 12 miles off the coast of Louisiana. A new study by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Florida State University estimates that the rig is leaking 4,500 gallons per day. In 2004, the oil rig pipes ruptured and have been releasing oil into the Gulf ever since. This spilled oil is devastating to marine wildlife in the Gulf. Sea otters experience hypothermia when oil coats their fur and interferes with their fur's natural function of keeping them warm. Marine mammals can sustain damage to their internal organs when they lick oil off their fur. Spill oil also causes respiratory problems in whales and dolphins and disturbs organ function in sea turtles.
1: Now there are more free-flowing rivers in the USA. In 2018, 82 dams were removed across the country. The tally includes obsolete dams in 18 states. California topped the list, removing 35 dams. Removing dams helps restore native fish habitat. Dam removal also improves the ecological health of land around streams. Southern Western states also developed new management plans for the Colorado River and its tributaries. The Colorado River Basin runs from Wyoming southwest through the Grand Canyon, then on to Yuma, Arizona. The Colorado River has long been overapportioned. This means that the river doesn't have enough water for those who have rights to it. With climate models pointing to a drier future, States around the Colorado River have agreed that farmers, cities, and other water users need to voluntarily cut back their water usage to reduce the risk of drought. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner.
3: And I'm Glenn Leitner. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op groceries since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for the Secret Life of Fungi.
4: The former Russian space station Mir reportedly smelled like rotten apples, and globs of mold floated in the electrical panels. For over a decade before the station was decommissioned, fungi flourished on the mirror, demonstrating its resilience in space. In fact, the fungi kingdom has been in space since the beginning. I'm Caitlin Huffman Brower, and I'll explore the past, present, and future of mushrooms in space in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Cosmonauts and their international colleagues using the Low Orbit Research Lab were plagued with fungi that came into the Mir space station naturally on the space explorer's skin. The fungi had no hostile intent, it was simply doing its organic recycler job, eating dead skin as the cosmonauts naturally shed it. On Earth, with gravity slowing spore distribution, this is the kind of tiny microbe that human hosts would never notice but over time in the confines of the space station, a whole variety of dead-skin decomposers started to etch into unlikely surfaces all over the mirror, even on the quartz glass of fairy viewports. The fungi spread out, networking with its mycelium, naturally seeking connection. In many ways, fungi are particularly resilient space travelers, even outside human transport. Spores can withstand harsh conditions like outer space, remaining dormant for extremely long periods of time. Extreme cold? No problem. Cosmic radiation? Fungi can handle it. Astrobiologists have long theorized about the nature of life throughout our galaxy, speculating that pre-nucleic acids, in other words, the building blocks of life, spring naturally from the cosmos as matter organizes. These building blocks, and even fully formed spore, travel on comets or on interstellar plasmic winds. This interstellar migration, known as panspermia, isn't just the stuff of science fiction. Life, especially dormant microbial life, could have been introduced to Earth by traveling from distant planets. Today, astrobiologists are actively involved in applied research, currently testing how humans can establish future colonies on other planetary bodies. On the far side of the moon, a Chinese lab is germinating seeds and growing plants. And as of January 15, 2019, cotton seed has sprouted. The unmanned lab also holds fly eggs and yeast, a type of fungi, both of which will need oxygen to survive. The Chinese are testing the photosynthesis and oxygen-generating capabilities of the plants germinated on the Moon. At the same time, NASA has a rover on Mars and plans a human outpost on the Red Planet by the 2030s. NASA scientists are also evaluating the role of the fungi kingdom in space exploration. No doubt there will be room for mushrooms in space. Space travelers can grow mushrooms for nutrient-rich food. For long-term colonies, fungi will serve as essential soil builders for other food crops. Also, as cosmonauts learned on the space station Mir, fungi will travel with the colonists' microbiomes on their skin and in their guts. The fungi kingdom is an inextricable part of human ecosystems. I'm Kaelin Huffman Brower with The Secret Life of Fungi, here for you on Eco Report.
1: Today, WFHB's Norm Holy talks with the world-renowned fisheries scientist, Dr. Daniel Pauley, about how overfishing and changing environmental conditions are impacting fish populations in North American waters. Dr. Pauly is with the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia.
2: I'd like to start off, if you would, um, with what is the situation in the Gulf of Maine now in respect to the health of that body
5: of water and the fishery? The body of water is doing fine in terms of water, except that it is getting warmer. But uh, this was historically... uh, a very rich body of water, especially for cod. And uh, people came from all over the place, and especially Europe, to fish in New England and uh, in Canada. And uh, this uh, this abundance of cod uh, was actually much reduced already in the, in the 19th century. And the 20th century has given uh, these resources the rest in a sense that as we, when we unlashed trawlers, uh, modern trawlers onto the resource, it it disappeared. Essentially disappeared. So cod is uh, gone from from much of New England and the Gulf of Maine. Uh, this is also true for uh, some fish that were called redfish, that were deep water, uh, deeper water fish that also uh, supported a long time vibrant vibrant fishery now, in the Gulf of Maine, all you have is lobster 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 cages or, or rather traps, and lobsters that get caught because these traps are baited. so uh about uh, uh, fifty thousand tons or so of fish are fed to these to these lobsters, um, and uh, they they grow like crazy. Uh, when they are small, they get into the traps, they eat the bait, get out, and they do that several times until they are caught. And in a sense, in a, the Gulf of Maine has become a nursery ground for for semi-farmed uh, lobsters, and a lobster fishery is making lots of money, and is considered to be a successful fishery. But 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 actually, the animals are fed, and the predators that uh, would eat the lobsters uh, would be uh, almost gone, uh, gone. Uh, the, the, uh, the cod like to eat lobsters. So the, the situation is very unnatural, and uh, it, it is moreover threatened now by global warming. And uh, the warming of the water of the Gulf of Maine means that uh, basically in the next years or in the next decade, the, this bonanza will be over. And Canada will be profiting for a decade, or perhaps or so uh, uh, a lobster boom, because Canada also saw its its cod disappear, and uh, or other it overfished its cod, and uh, it will have a a, a crab a lobster bonanza, and it will also disappear because because this uh, global warming and uh, movement that it forces on the on lobsters and other animals to go toward the pole, to, to move toward higher latitudes, is not going to cease, is not going to stop. And uh, the Gulf of Maine is now being invaded by forms, by fish that before lived in, I don't know, in North Carolina, in South Carolina, in Florida, and so on. This has begun, this movement of fish toward the north, toward the North Pole, and we also have it on this side in the Pacific and uh... it also occurs in the southern hemisphere in australia and so on the the fish are moving north, so the gulf of maine will see uh, uh, a huge transition and uh... uh... in the uh, the fish that live there and it is going to be accelerated by the fact that uh... there is no natural population anymore uh, there is only this huge population of cra of lobsters that are there maintained artificially by by being fed with bait. I'm curious now,
2: what will happen to the uh, lobster uh, fishery in uh, the Bay of Fundy?
5: Uh, it will boom for a while, as, as it does in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the Gulf of Maine, and then it will go down to two bars well, one decade or so.
2: Will the uh, lobsters
5: move up to the Grand Bank? Yep. Basically, if it's not too deep, they will move wherever the temperature is right, because uh, 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 animals that breathe water, like fish and lobsters and so on, uh, they, they have to be in the temperature that is right for them, and uh, the Gulf of Maine is getting too warm for them, and so at the edge of the, of the, of the distribution, it's, it's too warm, they get sick, they don't grow well, so they move north, or rather, they don't move, but uh, the ones that are in the north reproduce better. And so you have a a gradual movement of the population toward the north.
2: I'm curious um, about the the Grand Banks. So in, I I think it was 1992, they uh, ended the cod fishery on the the Grand Banks, and they expected initially that the cod fishery would recover in a few years.
5: I I know what you're going to say, but it, it is actually... I was talking with a student of mine just a, a few a few hours ago. Actually, the, in ninety two, the fishery was closed because the abundance of the cod had declined to extremely low levels, about 1 percent or less of its original uh, amount or its original abundance. But the fishery continued at very low level. Uh, the catch was very small. But since the population was also very small, the, what is called the exportation rate, uh, it is really the catch uh, relative to the abundance, actually was not reduced much. So the, the, the reason why the cod didn't recover, really, is because it continued to be fished. I, and that is, most people don't know that. Because the catches uh, after uh, industrial fishery was industrial fishing was forbidden. And so there were no more initial catch. But the, the no were permitted to fish for their home consumption. The, the, the recreational fishery continued and so on, and there was some illegal fishing. Combined, uh, and they were, uh, young cod were caught as bycatch of the shrimp fishery, which then developed. For all this reason, the pressure on the much-reduced stock of cod continued to be high. It is very surprising to people to hear that and know that, but actually it's no wonder that they didn't recover because they were they continued to be exploited after ninety two, after the fishery was closed. Now, was there actually a, a regime change? Uh, no, there wasn't. They, the, the stock was fished like crazy. Obviously, there was a regime change in the head of the managers who had goofed up, and in fact, the the Department of Fisheries and Ocean entertain four scientists to actually research the warming or the cooling of the water or or the seals. You cannot imagine how how much pressure there was to find other things. And the one leading scientist, Ram Myers, who is now passed away, he continued to write this was overfishing, this was overfishing, this was overfishing, and he had to leave the DFO and join uh, a university uh, in Halifax because the pressure was, this is not us, this is not the fault of the fishery, this is not the fault of management. Actually, it was. The, the fishing pressure was so enormous that the stock had to collapse.
2: So how important would it be to have conservation areas, that is, no fishing areas, in the Arctic Ocean?
5: Well, the Arctic Ocean right now is such an area because the, the countries of the Arctic Council have decided that the Arctic should not be open to industrial fishing. We will see in the next uh, years or decade whether the Arctic Council can stop themselves from, from exploiting the, the resource of the Arctic, and if they can stop other players from coming there, uh, China and uh, Korea, for example, South Korea will want to fish there. They're not a member of the Arctic Council. But the temptation will be big, because even though the Arctic waters are unproductive, there will be an accumulation of fish, that, like an old growth forest. And uh, you can make lots of money in, in exploiting that. Uh, is not sustainable, but uh, then fisheries are usually not. And uh, they would make lots of money growing rapidly a fishery that would last only a decade or so. Uh, that is contrary to the situation in Alaska, by the way, where the fishery is very well managed by, the, by NOAA, by, uh, by the Fisheries Agency.
1: That was world-renowned fisheries scientist Dr. Daniel Pauley speaking to WFHB's Norm Holy. We will hear part two of their conversation next week as they continue to discuss the impact of changing environmental conditions on salmon and other fish in North American waters.
3: Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature.
0: This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly and today I'm going to talk to you about a swamp rabbit. Is it a killer rabbit? Nope, not a chance. The solitary swamp rabbit is anything but predatory. It is an interesting creature though. It's the largest cottontail found in North America, but it differs from its other white-tailed relatives. The biggest difference is the fact it is a semi-aquatic animal. Its home range is limited within 1.25 miles of water. Water is necessary for its survival. Watery habitats, which include wetlands, swamps, marshes, floodplains, and wet bottom lands offer the rabbits plenty of grasses, sedges, and tree saplings they enjoy. It also provides ample protection from predators. Like all rabbits, swamp rabbits are swift creatures by running in a zigzag pattern to take off into the water. Once in the water, they hide in the thick vegetation or immerse themselves with only their nose sticking out. The swamp rabbit population extends from the Gulf of Mexico to southern Indiana. According to the Indiana Fish and Wildlife Services, the swamp rabbit is a state-endangered species due to habitat destruction and degradation. Wetland draining, increasing agricultural encroachment, and protection against flooding are all significant threats to the remaining swamp rabbit populations. With only 0.91% of Indiana covered by wetlands, the swamp rabbit has very few places to live. In 1979, the Swamp Rabbit enjoyed a brief stint of notoriety when one was involved in a too-close-for-comfort encounter with President Jimmy Carter. The Nature Conservancy and the Indiana Wetlands Reserve Program are just two organizations in Indiana that are hoping to protect the remaining wetlands for the benefit of the Swamp Rabbit as well as man. You've been
1: listening to In Nature. And now for some upcoming local events. Paintown State Recreation Area will be hosting a campfire program on the story of bald eagles at Lake Monroe. The program is on Friday, July 26, and runs from 8:15 to 8:45 p.m. It will meet at the Activity Center Amphitheater. Participants can hear about the reintroduction of bald eagles to the Lake Monroe area.
3: There will be a hike around Ogle Lake at Brown County State Park on Saturday, July 27th. It will run from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Lake Ogle parking area and take a hike with the naturalist. The Lake Ogle Trail is listed as moderate and is approximately 1.5 miles in length. Wear sturdy shoes and bring a water bottle.
1: On Tuesday, July 30th, there will be a program about the hellbender at Brown County State Park from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Meet at the Nature Center to learn about Indiana's giant salamander, also known as the mud dog. Learn what you can do to help save this endangered species.
3: The next invasive control workday will be on Saturday, August 3rd at Griffey Lake. It will run from 1 to 4 p.m. Participants will partner with City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation staff to help remove invasive privet and Japanese stiltgrass. Meet at the Griffey Lake Boat House parking lot, wear long pants, long sleeves, and closed-toed shoes. Register by contacting Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov.
1: And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility, found locally at 812-334 4003 and on the web at MPI
3: This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Sarah Vaughn. Kaylin Huffman Brower produced The Secret Life of Fungi. Juliana Daly wrote our In Nature segment and compiled our events calendar.
1: Andrew Brown, Sarah Vaughn, and Kaylin Huffman-Brower edited the script. Patrick Callahan engineered today's show with help from Sidney Foreman. Sarah Vaughn produced today's show.
3: Tune in on Thursdays at 1130 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, as well as In Nature, Get out and hike and secret life of fungi episodes anytime at WFHB.org. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner.
1: And I'm Linda Leitner. Of Community Radio WFHB
3: in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.
2: Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source
1: for South Central Indiana.
2: Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear.
1: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
3: directly to the Eco Report staff.
1: The email address is
3: earth at wfhb.org. Earth at wfhb.org.
1: That's earth at wfhb.org. <laughs>